You could be seated. Well, we're in Genesis 35, if you have a Bible with you this morning, whether it's electronic or in hard copy, or you just want to look up on the screens as we read the passage in a bit. We're in Genesis chapter 35, as we continue this study in the book of beginnings, as we're calling it, the book of Genesis. Before I read our passage, let me ask you if you can mark the lowest point in your life so far. What, was, what has been the lowest point of your life? Perhaps it was a time, an experience that was more done to you than something you did. And for others, they'd have to admit that their lowest point was very much their own doing. And if you're a Christian, by the way, I hope when you hear something like the lowest point in your life, you're not thinking about a low point financially, a low point professionally, and maybe not even a low point emotionally or something, but a low point spiritually, a low point in your walk with the Lord. That for the Christian should be of utmost concern. And I'm sure some of us here today have hit such a low point somewhere in our lives that we wondered if God was done with us. We wondered if he is just sick of us. We wondered if there was any way forward with him. And some of you have been there and you have come out the other side. God has graciously seen you through it and out of it. And he has indeed welcomed you back into fellowship with him. And perhaps painful consequences of your low point still remain in your life. And yet God's grace is all the more sweet and real to you because of what you've been through. Well, in Genesis 34, our passage for last week, we saw the lowest point in the life of Jacob. It is a dark chapter, the details of which I won't rehearse. The headlines are rape, deception, and mass murder. And even though Jacob wasn't the initial cause of the problem, he was far from the solution. He was wickedly passive. Self-protecting, self-interested, completely earthly in his thinking. There is no mention of God in Genesis 34. And that signals to us that God is not on anyone's mind in that dark chapter. No prayers to God. No seeking him for wisdom. No pursuits or decisions with him in mind. Genesis 34 is Jacob's low point. And that's saying something for a guy who's had some low points before. And yet, it's also Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those three patriarchs who get referred to dozens and dozens of times in later scripture. God himself identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promises of the Abrahamic covenant which is God's plan to bless the world 
and undo the curse. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant run through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's plan to establish his kingdom and bless the world runs through sinners. Sinners like Jacob, sinners with real low points. And you, you got to ask, can God do anything with this man at the end of chapter 34? Can God continue to work with this messed up family? Wasn't God eventually, well, won't he eventually wash his hands of these people and scrap the plan and start over with another group? After all, he did something similar with the flood in Genesis 6. But then we turn to Genesis 35. And if God was eerily absent in chapter 34, he is everywhere in chapter 35. If Genesis 34 was Jacob's low point spiritually, then Genesis 35 is possibly his high point. And yes, consequences from old sins still remain. But God is faithful. God is faithful to restore his wayward people and to reconfirm his promises of old. So let's read Genesis 35 now. I won't read from chapter 36, which we'll also talk about. I won't read it since it's a genealogy. I'll explain what's going on there when we get to it, but we will spend most of our time on chapter 35. So let's read that now. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob, said, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. 
When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Well, in a passage with a lot going on, many different scenes, much geographical movement to it, let me just suggest four lessons that we should see Four lessons concerning God's faithfulness in Genesis 35 and 36. Two long lessons, at least that's what it'll take us this morning, and then two shorter lessons, just so you know where we're going. The first lesson is that God is faithful to restore his people. He is faithful to restore his wayward people, to restore them to worship. So after that debacle of chapter 34, God initiates. God comes to Jacob. God speaks to Jacob, perhaps finding him in a moment of lying prostrate because God says, arise. Verse 1, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there. The altar is for worship. And Bethel is the place you ought to be. That's where he's from. That's where his people are from. That's where Abraham first settled and built an altar back in chapter 12. Bethel is where Jacob first encountered God with that vision of the heavenly angelic ladder going up to heaven. It was there that God spoke to him and gave him the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It was then that Jacob responded with this beautiful exclamation in chapter 28. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. It's the city of the place of God's presence, at least for that time in those days. 
And Bethel is where Jacob was supposed to return after his time on Uncle Laban's farm. He rightly fled from Bethel to escape his brother's murderous plot and to find a wife. But God said after 20 years that he was to return to Bethel. Chapter 31, verse 3, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. But if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Jacob was heading back home in chapter 32 and 33, or so it seemed, but he stopped short of Bethel. Instead, he settled in Shechem. That's the land of Canaan still, but not the right city, Bethel. And some estimate that Jacob was in Shechem for up to 10 years. It was during that time that the tragic circumstances of chapter 34 took place. They took place because he stopped in Shechem. So God's call back to Bethel in chapter 35 marks a gracious restoration of Jacob. God is getting his man back on track and in the right place. And how patient and kind and gracious is this God. Did you notice there's no word of confrontation about stopping short of Bethel 10 years ago. There's no word of confrontation about what took place in Shechem, how Jacob failed his family in that day. No, God's grace is unspoken and assumed when God says, Get up, go to Bethel, the house of God, make an altar. But God's amazing grace, though it's free, it's, uh, it's also transformative. And so it leads Jacob to lead his family in corporate repentance and consecration. Verse 2, Jacob said to his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Wait, foreign gods? Foreign gods with these people? Where did they come from? And we don't know. Perhaps from the plundering of goods in pagan Shechem. Perhaps from all the way back to Uncle Laban's farm. It's unfortunate that idols were found among God's people. That was wrong. And they knew better. But here, in this moment of God restoring Jacob to worship, he knew what to do right then. He should have done it earlier, but he knew what to do then. Put the idols away, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. That change of clothes symbolized repentance. A fresh start. A new day. Off with the old, on with the new. And Jacob collects the idols and buries them under a tree. He buries them, signifying that the family is done with them. Put them to bed, put them to death. And perhaps as well, the burying signifies what was already the case, that these idols are dead. These are dead, quote-unquote, gods. They're not real. We should remember how often the Bible ridicules and mocks the silliness 
of false gods. Psalm 115, we sometimes sing this as a church. They're idols of silver and gold, the work of human hands. These things, they have mouths but don't speak. They have hands but can't feel. They have ears but can't hear. They have, they have feet but they don't walk. And those who make them become like them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord instead, Psalm 115 says. Idols promise much, but they deliver nothing, for they are nothing. And we should remember that idolatry isn't limited to sculpted icons and statues that someone might have in their tent in the ancient Near East or in parts of the world today. No, an idol is anything that we worship, that we trust, that we seek in the place of God. They can be good things. We are to enjoy good things as gifts of God, but not as God. They can be amoral things, things that are potentially good or bad, depending on how we use them. But when anything becomes a God-like thing, it becomes an idol to us, whatever it is. And what do you do with idols? You bury them. You put them down. You get rid of them. You collect them, and you put them in the ground. First John ends like this. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. Heads of households here. In some households, that's men. In some, it's single moms. But heads of households, like Jacob, need to lead their family in repentance at times. You need to lead your family in burying the idols. And yes, you should have done it a long time. Yes, the idols shouldn't be in your tent anyway, but they're there. And so do it today. Get rid of them. Lead the way. Obey, obey all the way, even at great risk, like it was for Jacob's family to travel again. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon all the cities around them so that no one touched them. Remember, after the deception and mass murder and plundering of chapter 34, back there, Jacob said to the sons who did that, he said, you have made a stink of our family, and we're going to be a target. Well, here, God mysteriously protected his obedient people to get them on the way to the right place for worship. God doesn't always protect his obedient children that way. You think of the language of the three Hebrew children in Daniel 3 when they said, Oh, King Ebenezer, our God is able to rescue us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we still will not bow. We will not bow. God doesn't always protect his obedient children. He did in Daniel 3. He did here in chapter 35. Sometimes God protects his people actually through persecution and actually through their death than what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says persecution, sword, famine. In all these things, we are more than conquerors because of him who loves us. And yet, praise God for all of his 
various forms and times of protection. I mean, the Psalms talk about us having angels that watch over us so that we don't dash our foot on a stone. God's protection is everywhere. The fact that you're here today is just proof. Let's thank God for the miraculous and mundane protection, the seen and the unseen, the the known and the unnoticed. How much goes unnoticed? As they arrive in Bethel, there is now a, a new altar, verse 7, and a new name to the place. He called it El Bethel. Remember, Bethel means house of God. So what's El Bethel? It means the God of the house of God. This Jacob's growing, isn't he? He's getting it. It's not about the place. It's about him. That's what makes the place a special place. That's what makes this gathering of Christians special, not because of the people in the room or the building, but because of the God who meets with us. He is the God of the house of God. And so Jacob sets up, verse 14, a pillar of stone as a memorial and for worship. And now there's an altar and a pillar set up in Bethel, or El Bethel which would be public testimonies for the Canaanites to see. It would stand out like a sore thumb in the midst of all their pagan worship. Here is this altar. Here is this pillar to a God they don't yet know or understand. So this is what repentance and restoration looks like, friend. God graciously calls us back. He summons us. He welcomes us. Jacob here responds in repentance and obedience, leading to worship and a fresh encounter with God. And so if this morning you find yourself away from the Lord, perhaps right now at your lowest point, or perhaps just at another all too typical low for you, well, you know what to do. Jacob showed you the way. Find encouragement here in Genesis 35. Be encouraged that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. He's not done with us. He'll see us through even when he needs to restore us to worship. Secondly, God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. That's what we see in verse 9 and following. God appeared to Jacob again. He blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer will it be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And you say, deja vu. Didn't this happen already? Yeah, it was back in chapter 32 at the Jabbok River after wrestling with God that God there said that Jacob had this new name, Israel. Remember the significance of that moment? God said, Jacob, what's your name? He said, Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver. It was a moment of confession. And then God said, new name, Israel, which means God strives. God works. 
God accomplishes. That's your new name, your new identity. So why does God give him the same new name in chapter 35? Well, perhaps this is where things are coming together for Jacob. Perhaps this is where Jacob is finally beginning to live out that new name. Or perhaps Jacob, Israel, just needs to hear it again. Don't forget it. Jacob, don't forget who you are. Don't forget the God you serve. Don't forget what he does. Christian, don't forget who you are. You are a child of God, adopted, beloved. You are saint. You are holy priesthood, a holy nation. Don't forget who you are. Hear it again. And hear the promises of God again and again. Jacob got the Abrahamic covenant restated to him again. And not only is this a repetition in, a, uh, in Jacob's hearing, but this is a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant that has been repeated again and again in the previous generations. It's something like five or six times that Father Abraham got the parameters and promises of the Abrahamic covenant relayed to him by God. Another couple times happened with Jacob's dad, Isaac. And here, now we're getting the third time where Jacob gets it. And it has all the similarities. It reminisces with Genesis 17 back in Abraham's day. There in chapter 17, God gave Abram a new name, Abraham. There in chapter 17, like our chapter, God refers to himself as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And of course, the same terms of the covenant are spelled out again. A nation shall come from you. Nations will come from you. A company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. And I will give you land, promised land, as an inheritance. Now here in Genesis 35, rather uniquely, God tells Israel to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 11, that's the same language of Genesis 1.28, which God told to Adam at the dawn of creation. And that it gets repeated here to Jacob tells us that God is still on the same program. Sin hasn't messed things up. For good, sin, yes, entering the world has meant the need for salvation, yes. But salvation and restoration to, unto all those things that God planned all along. A people for himself, to spread his glory in the world. And they would do this by exercising dominion in the world. And by subduing the bad. And by having kids. In the faith, be fruitful and multiply. And Paul would want us to pick up what he said in Colossians 1.16 when he uses similar language, I think purposeful language, about bearing fruit and increasing with the gospel. He says the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. It is being fruitful and multiplying in the world. 
But, but back to Genesis, why all this repeating of the things that have already been said? I've already mentioned the specifics, that Jacob gets three, and Abraham got six, and his father Isaac got two. So what gives with over ten times repeating the same thing, basically the same thing? And I can think of three reasons for the repetition of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. You ready? One, it is just that important. It is that fundamental. The Abrahamic covenant is actually unfolding and being fulfilled this very day and will be until Jesus comes back. It's that important. It's that foundational. Secondly, every generation will need their own rehearsing and remembering and reminding and recounting what God has already said. And third, Jacob, especially Jacob, and especially right now, needs to know that the promises are still intact despite what happened in Shechem. The promises are still intact despite Jacob in all his waywardness. The Abrahamic covenant is by its nature unconditional and unilateral, meaning God does it himself. That's why the promises always begin with, I will. God says that, I will, I will, I will. It's what he will do. And that covenant is for sinners. It is for sinners who believe and trust God to accomplish what he said he would do. It's for sinners who will look outside themselves to look to God's grace, which can't be canceled out. God is determined to bless a people despite them and despite their sin. And that covenant, that, that covenant for sinners, that covenant that is so foundational to all of God's plan, that covenant is actually for us who believe in Christ today. He's the seed, the offspring of Abraham, the ultimate one. He is the king that comes from Abraham and David. He is the embodiment, the fulfillment of the blessing to the whole world. And so this covenant is not only for national Israel, but for all those who would become children of Abraham through faith. That's the language of Galatians 3 and 4, or Romans 4. You can find it there. This covenant is our covenant. When we're reading Genesis 35, we're not reading someone else's mail. This is God's love letter to Jacob and to us. And oh, how Jacob needed to hear again the promises of old and to be reminded that they were still intact despite his sin. God is not done with him. And oh, how we need reminding and rehearsing of all that God has done is doing, and will do. God is not done with us. This week's sins do not cancel out his love for us or his commitment to us or his plans for us. We need reminding and rehearsing and recounting. And that's why we come to church. That's why we gather as a church. That's why we sing like we do. We just sing the same truths over and over Every week, 
That's why we need to pray with each other and pray about the same kinds of things almost every week. We need to hear God's word preached and preached at some length. We need to hear it again. Don't ever think, oh, I've heard this one before. Oh, I know that thing already. What else you got, preacher? No, that's the point. We're not doing anything creative. We're not doing anything inventive. We're not doing anything except recounting the promises of God, reminding ourselves that they are still true. This God is still faithful. He's still at work. He still welcomes back the wayward. He's still fulfilling all of his promises. Verse 16, back to our passage. Then they journeyed from Bethel, likely because they heard of Isaac's imminent death, so they're going to meet him. And on their way, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Don't fear, you have another son. He must have been about to come out. But she would not be consoled. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, verse 18, she called his name Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, Son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried. Rachel named her first child Joseph, which is a form of the Hebrew word for another, because she hoped for another. And here she got another. Ironically, she, in the past, once before any kid, she said, Give me children or I die. Ironically, now she dies bearing a child. And in his heartache, in this moment of heartache, we have here glimmers of hope. Like Rachel being buried in Bethlehem. Little town of Bethlehem. This is the first mention of that city that we sing about every Christmas. Bethlehem was, of course, the birthplace of King David. It was also foretold in Micah 5.2 that in Bethlehem a ruler would be born whose origins are from of old, from ancient days. And of course Bethlehem was indeed that city where King Jesus was born as Matthew 2 records. So much takes place in Bethlehem and it all starts here with Rachel's burial. We also have this glimmer of hope with Benjamin's birth. Now we have 12 sons of Jacob. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, verse 22. 12 sons who will make up the 12 tribes of Israel. From this point on, the number 12 will become a frequent designation for completeness. 12 stones, 12 pillars, 12 staffs. Twelve of every instrument needed for worship in the tabernacle. Twelve, 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 twelve. And then you come to the end of our Bibles and you read this. Revelation 21. That in the new heaven and the new earth there was a great high wall with twelve gates. At the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them 
were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, representing the wholeness, the completeness of the people of God from Old Testament times and New Testament times. 12, 12, 12. Here's the beginning of it. And yet, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Genesis 35 is certainly a long ways away from the new heaven and the new earth that hasn't even happened yet. Now, we're not in heaven yet, and neither were they in Genesis 35. And so, with all the glimmers of hope, like Bethlehem in 12 tribes, there are still ongoing difficulties, small and great. Did you notice that the listing of the 12 sons, verses 22 to 26, is not by their birth order, as you might expect, but by their moms. And what a web of moms and sons this is. And the effects of all that concubining and rivalry and envy is still felt. It's like they're on different teams. There's 12 of them, but they're spoken of according to their moms. Tensions remain. God's covenant is indeed unconditional, but sin is not without consequences. And let's not overlook Reuben's sin in the middle of all this. Verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. What happened here? Well, it's not just simple passion or lust or sex. The taking of a father's concubine like this in ancient Near East cultures signified that the firstborn was getting his inheritance. He, he was taking his inheritance. It was certainly not a gentlemanly way to go about getting your inheritance. It was laying claim on the inheritance on the son's terms, in the son's own timing. It was essentially saying to the father, you're as good as dead to me and I'm taking what's mine. That's what happened. Why is it here? Why is it here, right here, right before the genealogy of the 12 sons? Well, by this act in verse 22, Reuben, though the firstborn, he was disqualifying himself from receiving that prime inheritance of being the firstborn. It's in Genesis 49 on Jacob's deathbed. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up into your father's bed and defiled it. Firstborn, canceled. Secondborn, well, that's Simeon. And thirdborn, Levi, we saw last week. Chase showed us that and showed us as well from Genesis 49. They were canceled off the list of first inheritors because of what they did in Genesis 34. So what's the next generation looking like here? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Who? It's Judah, the fourthborn. I mean, who to thunk? The fourthborn. Isn't that just the way God works? 
Esau's first. Jacob comes out. Jacob's the chosen one, not Esau. You got these mighty men of the sons of Jacob. Firstborn, nope. Secondborn, nope. Thirdborn, nope. Fourthborn. And of the fourthborn, Jacob prophesies from his deathbed in chapter 49. Oh, Judah is a lion's cub. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples of the world. And that's why Matthew begins his genealogy of Jesus, tying him not just to King David, but to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. He's the king that Genesis 49 really was talking about. And now thirdly, and these will go more quickly, I assure you. This is another lesson for us here. God is faithful to see us through this life. Did you notice that there are three deaths in our passage? Three deaths. There are three journeys punctuated by three deaths and burials. Verse 8 is the first. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. Now, there's no record of Rebekah's death in the book of Genesis, but apparently it's already happened at this point. Perhaps it happened during that 20-year span while Jacob was with Uncle Laban. And there's no mention of this Deborah before this in Genesis 35, but she is Rebecca's nurse. She obviously was important to the family. Perhaps she was like a second mom to these sons. And so she died. Verse 19, Rachel died, remember that? And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar. Rachel tragically died in painful childbearing. Rachel, whom Jacob loved, perhaps a little too much. She's done. She's gone. And then the third death, verse 27, Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre. Verse 28, now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. He and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Huh. So Esau and Jacob are back together for their father's burial. Like many funerals do, they often reunite divided family members. Isaac lived to the ripe age of 180. I mean, he was old and blind back 80 years ago, that day when Jacob deceived his blind, failing father. But that's all behind them now. Isaac breathed his last, and he died full of days. The Bible has so much to say about death and burial and mourning. I'm so thankful for that because death is hard. It is weird, isn't it? I mean, we can just own up to that. It is really sad. The Bible tells us why death is in this world, why it's everywhere. It's because sin has entered this world and because we are all sinners. And the payment for sin 
has been death from the beginning. And we experience it all the time. The Bible, story after story, records deaths and burials and mournings and almost gives us people's journal accounts as they grieve the loss of their loved ones. The Bible doesn't whitewash the grief of death anywhere. And here is a chapter marked out by the loss of three beloved family members. And it doesn't say anything explicitly about the grief that they feel, the sadness of the loss, but you can feel it, can't you? You can feel the inevitability of death, the loss of death, the finality of death. You can feel something of the love in these relationships, even though they've been strained. They care for each other. You see something of the hope even in this death, these deaths. Notice verse 29, Isaac died and was gathered to his people. Not Isaac died and that's it. Isaac died and was no more. Isaac died and decomposed. It doesn't say any of that. It says Isaac died and he was gathered to his people. And then you fast forward to the New Testament and what that has to say about death and how Jesus conquered death in the cross, in the resurrection. He defeated death. So yes, Christians who trust in him still die, but Jesus has transformed death so we don't have to fear death. Death is the passageway to his presence. And so we don't have to, we don't have to mourn the way the world does. Don't you love 1 Thessalonians 4? We grieve, but not as those without hope. There is a Christian way to grieve. And it's real grief, but it's real hope. Genesis 35 is one of those seasons where it feels like we're coming to an end of an era. A generation moves on, leaving the next generation to follow in their footsteps of faith and eventually follow them to the other side. It's what's been happening ever since Genesis 3. Generations come and go and come and go. And many of you have seen two or three on your watch in this world. The baton just keeps getting passed. That's what we want, right? The baton of faith just keeps getting passed. It's like a picture of a relay race. You've got the baton. You're running the race. None of us are doing great in the race. But are we making progress? Will it get to the next generation? I mean, Isaac had been through some stuff in his days. His dad almost killed him when he was young. He's had two sons that have been battling their whole life. Esau went his own way, did his own thing, married Hittite women who caused the whole family trouble. Jacob, yes, he was God's chosen man in his generation, but what a rascal. You know Isaac was thinking at times, is this kid ever going to come around? Is he ever going to stop swindling people out of their stuff? And looking out only for himself. But in his final days, on his deathbed, the rascal son shows up. And he's not perfect, but he's walking with the Lord. Jacob believes God and trusts God and, and says, as a testimony to God, he's the God who's been with me everywhere I go. He's been with me in my distress. He answers me. 
Jacob is walking with God now. He's, he's setting up memorials to God all over the pagan land of Canaan. His sons, well, that's a weird family. It's messed up. They're hit or miss among the sons. But, but the faith is being passed on. The faith will be passed on. And isn't that what matters most? Isn't that what should drive our lives? Unless the Lord Jesus returns before, everyone in this room one day will find themselves breathing their last. Loved ones standing over us as we do so. Every one of us, unless the Lord returns, we will have final words, even if we don't know that they're final words when we speak them. What will our dying be like? What is our living like? God can see it through for us. God can see us through all of life, even unto death and to the other side. Fourth, a fourth lesson which gets us into chapter 36, which I won't read. God is faithful despite what it seems. That's the lesson, the primary lesson of chapter 36. Verse 1 says, these are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. And what follows is a long genealogy of Esau and his offspring. Let me just point out some things that we can learn. And if you'd like, on your own later today, you can read chapter 36 and try to pronounce these names that I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> One lesson we see here is that God is showing us here that Esau apparently remained ungodly the rest of his life. Esau took wives from the Canaanites, it says here in verse 2, which we've already learned from earlier in the story. That wasn't so much an issue of ethnicity. That was a problem for religion, for faith. They had different faiths. He didn't care that they believed other things. It marked him going astray. And notice verse 6, if you're looking down at Genesis 36, he went into land away from his brother Jacob away from the promises, away from the covenant, away from God's worship. He didn't care. Genesis 36 also tells us that Esau became eventually the Edomites. Three times, verse 1, 8, and 19, it says, Esau, that is Edom, to remind God's people that this is the history of those infamous Edomites who would be Israel's perennial enemy throughout their days. In Numbers 20, it was the Edomites who refused Israel free passage on their property. In Psalm 137, it records that when Jerusalem was being sacked and the people were being taken captive by, by Babylon, the Edomites cheered it on. They said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundation." These are the Edomites. And in chapter 36, Edomites look mighty and many. These are kings and chiefs with land and territory and people. And after Many, several verses of chapter 36, you get to chapter 37, verse 1, and read this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. 
See the contrast? Esau's people are people of might. They are many in number. They are kings and chiefs and property owners. And Jacob lived quietly in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. Promised land that wasn't yet his, but would be someday. God is faithful despite what things seem. So we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't judge things according to the rules of the world. At times it looks like the good guys are not on the winning end of things. At times it looks like the gospel isn't advancing much. It looks like the church is weak and broken and sinful. And yet we walk by faith and not by sight. We look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen, which are eternal. If we read on in the Bible, we find out that eventually Edom, the Edomites, will be destroyed. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to their coming judgment, Obadiah. It's only one chapter, but it's a whole book devoted to their coming judgment for their sinful ways and for their repeated abuse of Jacob and his people. Edomites are bad people. There are bad people in this world. Not everyone will be saved. But some will. Some Edomites will. You get this in Amos 9. In Amos 9, verse 11 and 12, God says, I will raise up the booth of David in those days. I will raise up the people of God and restore them, and they will possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that are called by my name. That's us. We may not be able to trace our lineage back to Edom, but we're among those pagan nations. We're among the Gentiles. And through faith, our father's Abraham. And these promises are ours. And they are sure. God is not done. And he will accomplish all that he said he would. Let's believe it. Let's remind each other of it weekly. And let's tell it to the world because more Edomites and other nations are still yet to come in and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for these stories, even this genealogy. We thank you for your grand story. We thank you, Lord, for where you have applied it to our hearts through faith and saved us. Lord, we pray you do that afresh here today for some who haven't yet come to believe in Jesus. We pray they would be saved. We pray they would join us in worship. And we pray, Lord, for every weak brother and sister in this room who feels away from you and from your ways and from your presence and feels unable to come back unable to rise up. Oh, Lord, would you give them assurance of your love today and comfort in the gospel that is outside of them. Would you assure them, Lord, of your amazing grace? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.